Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are Congressman and former New York prosecutor Dan Goldman and sports writer John Feinstein. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors in our recent episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, our guest is New York Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman. He's on two House panel committees, the Oversight Committee and the oddly named Weaponization Committee, uh, which seem explicitly aimed at bringing down Joe Biden and protecting Donald Trump. For 10 years, he was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, successfully prosecuting mafia figures and Russian mobsters, and he was the counsel to the House Intelligence Committee in the first Trump impeachment. Congressman, you know what serious prosecutions are like. What are these House committees doing? Um, They are working in reverse, which is that with any real investigation, certainly any prosecution, Uh, You follow the facts and the evidence to wherever the conclusion may lead. In this case, the Republicans have determined what conclusions they want, and they have made those allegations and accusations, and now they are trying to backfill with facts and evidence. But it is entirely outcome-driven, and that's part of the reason why they're falling flat a little bit is there isn't actually facts and evidence to support their allegations and conclusions. Jim Jordan, uh, who's prominent on all these committees, is dropping subpoenas when abandoned, reckless or otherwise. Now, when the shoe was on the other foot, Jordan stiffed subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Is that what some of his targets should do or is that bad form? What would you advise them if they asked you? No, look, I I think that congressional subpoenas should have a lot more weight than they do. Um, But and so I encourage everybody to comply with congressional subpoenas. However, if those subpoenas are issued in bad faith or outside the jurisdiction of a congressional committee, then the recipients of the subpoenas need not respond the way that Jim Jordan would want. And part of that is certainly his hypocrisy, but part of it is also the abuse and, dare I say, weaponization of the federal government that uh, Mr. Jordan and others are clearly engaged in. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, the Alvin Bragg situation. Uh, The fact that Jim Jordan, James Comer, and Brian Stile, three committee chairmen, Uh, issued a a letter requesting information about an ongoing criminal investigation in a state jurisdiction, not even a federal jurisdiction, uh, is completely outside the bounds and jurisdiction of Congress. And it's clearly an effort to use the official authority of Congress uh, as a third arm of Donald Trump's legal defense team. That's an abuse of power and that's a weaponization of the federal government. Let me try one more before turning it over to James. Your oversight committee chair is going full bore on the Biden family. 
Now, that may be legitimate if through high-level connections, Hunter Biden or other relatives were significantly enriched by foreign interest. I don't know whether that's the case or not. But if so, should there be a parallel investigation of Jared Kushner, who got a controversial $2 billion investment from the Saudi Arabian uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund at the direction of Prince Mohammed bin Salman? I think there's a critical distinction between Hunter Biden and Jared Kushner, and that's that Hunter Biden has always been a private citizen. Jared Kushner had a very senior position in the White House and quite clearly, or at least circumstantially, used that position to build a relationship with Mohammed bin Salman, the head, the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, that ultimately netted him a shocking $2 billion investment in for a investment firm uh, that is the first that Jared Kushner has run. He ran previously his father's real estate firm. This is entirely different, and it is it screams of potential corruption, and there should absolutely be an investigation into that. On the other hand, if Hunter Biden just simply made money uh, internationally as a private citizen, that in and of itself is not a problem and is not should not be within the jurisdiction of Congress to investigate. What Jim Comer and the Oversight Committee needs to do and needs to do quickly is to show some actual evidence that this is somehow connected to President Biden while he was in office as the vice president. It may be untoward and perhaps a little ugly for Hunter Biden to trade off of his last name Biden and get access to uh, opportunities that an, an average citizen would not get. But he would certainly not be the first person to use a last name for personal gain. The issue that Congress should uh, be focused on is whether there was any connection, illicit or otherwise, but with the President Biden. And thus far, they've shown nothing to that effect. And if they don't show something soon, then this is a further abuse of power. James. So Congress said a, a few months ago the New York Post ran a, a huge expose investigative story on you and debate the conclusion was is that you were guilty of the offense of having one unpaid parking ticket. Can you assure <laughs> our, our listeners that you have subsequently paid that parking ticket? I have paid that parking ticket. I, I pay <laughs> uh, I certainly pay all my tickets as as you probably know. Um Parking in New York City is uh, is, is interesting, uh, but uh, uh, it's certainly uh, you know yes you you are correct. We do we must hold public officials accountable for their action, and if you didn't pay that parking ticket, then. We expect you to pay the goddamn ticket, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, James, as you as you know, it it shows. I think a little bit that uh, I'm getting to them. If, uh, <laughs> if if what they're digging up is uh, is right. previously paid parking tickets uh, to try to to slam me, then something I'm I'm doing something right. So Absolutely. there's a, a basic thread up thought that goes through the commentary at, uh, I don't know what, the cable TV talkers, and it says, the thing's going on with the Manhattan DA. Look, let's face it, this, it might be a, a violation of rules, and it might even be a misdemeanor, but 
this is not a big deal. They paid a porn star $130,000 because they didn't want his wife to find out. And really, do we really want to use the courts for this kind of foolishness? Is that your view, or you think there's something a little more serious behind what the Manhattan DA is looking at? Look, I, th- I think Donald Trump's conduct is, uh, is very serious in this case. Uh, if you just look at the facts, he paid a porn star 130000 as well as a Playboy Playmate $150,000 shortly before an election uh, in order to silence them. And shortly after the Access Hollywood tape, uh, which prompted serious blowback against him. It was circumstantially, at least, a clear effort to hide information from the public and the use of funds to do so, which is an in-kind campaign contribution. Um, And the fact that he did it so close to the election when both of the affairs occurred a decade or more prior to the election is further proof. And it is exactly what our campaign finance laws are designed to prevent, which is that we want full transparency. Now, whether this is a federal crime or a state crime, you know, gets into some of the intricacies of the law. But I don't think there's any question that the conduct is serious. And we'll have to wait and see uh, how it is charged by the Manhattan District Attorney, if it is charged to see what the the legal theory is and, and what the additional evidence is, because we certainly don't know uh, any of that right now. Uh, tell us the difference. I, I'm not a, a Hill guy, but I, I get a, sometimes I get a little confused by nomenclature here. What is the difference between the Oversight Committee and the Weaponization Committee? So the Oversight Committee is the traditional committee that is uh, charged primarily with oversight and accountability of the federal government. Uh, it, it has a, a much narrower jurisdiction over uh, legislation, and it is principally charged with making sure that Congress is using its authority as a check and balance on uh, the executive branch. The weaponization subcommittee was a select subcommittee created by the Republicans just for this Congress uh, that is purportedly designed to address uh, what they believe to be the weaponization of the federal government against conservative voices. Um, Of course, you and I both know that the real weaponization of the federal government occurred under the administration of Donald Trump where he used the Department of Justice as his personal attorneys to attack his enemies and to help his friends. Um, The John Durham special counsel investigation is yet another example of uh, abusing the powers of the Department of Justice for political purposes, according to an expose in the New York Times. But it is a separate uh, subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee uh, that is ostensibly focused on what the Republicans call the weaponization of the federal government. I personally call it the Committee to Obstruct Justice because I think the principal design of that committee is to interfere with ongoing investigations, criminal investigations at the Department of Justice and now, as we see, at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Albert? Uh, Let me go back to the Manhattan case for a minute. I I accept your 
um, sense that there's some serious stuff here. But you've been a prosecutor, and you know you don't often get Saint Fran- a Saint Francis of Assisi as your as your chief witness uh, against uh, uh, the defendant. But this one seems even tougher. The star witness is Michael Cohen, sleazy background, proven perjurer, ex-con. That's going to make this case even tougher, isn't it? Yes, and I think that's the principal reason why the uh, Southern District of New York did not charge the case is that. The Southern District has very stringent requirements uh, for a a witness to get a cooperation agreement, uh, a defendant rather, to get a cooperation agreement in order to be a witness. And you have to have a cooperation agreement in order to be a witness. And for whatever reason, uh, Michael Cohen did not earn a cooperation agreement from the Southern District, and therefore he was not available as a witness to them for a, a more traditional campaign finance fraud case that Manhattan District Attorney does seem to be relying on him. But I would note that, as and you point out, some very, very uh, serious issues with uh, that will arise with his credibility. And I would also add that the fact that he uh, has been so outspoken against Donald Trump uh, shows some degree of uh, motive and bias against him, which will also be problematic as a witness. But he is corroborated, uh, at least to our knowledge, by uh, both documents uh, in terms of the uh, checks that were paid back to him, as well as a recording of him and Donald Trump and perhaps other witness statements as well. And so the prosecution will say, yes, he's all of those bad things, but you can trust his word because it is consistent with what other witnesses have said, and it is confirmed by documents and recordings. Michael Ludig, a distinguished conservative uh, federal judge, former federal judge, who's really been forthright on all these issues, said uh, in an interview with Charlie Sykes in Wisconsin the other day that, look, uh, he thinks it would be much better if the first two cases brought Uh, against Donald Trump, if they were to be brought, would be the Fulton County case about trying to manipulate and steal votes, and particularly the January 6th inciting a violent insurrection, that they are much more important uh, and perhaps even more winnable than either the Manhattan case uh, or the Mar-a-Lago documents. You agree? Well, based on what we know, which is somewhat limited, and I think it's really important to remember that we do not have all of the facts. Right. Uh, no matter what reporting we see, we for certain do not have all of the facts. Uh, I don't think there's any question that Donald Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election is a more serious and important crime than the campaign finance fraud and his effort to cover that up through falsifying his books and records. Um, there's, there's no doubt that that is a much more serious uh, set of facts relevant to our country, our democracy, our rule of law, our peaceful transfer of power. Uh, it goes to the very core of who we are as a country. And so I would agree with Judge Luddig that that is a more important case. But I think what's also important to remember, and we don't yet know what the evidence is, is just because a case is more important than another does not mean that the other is unimportant. And I think with Donald Trump, one of the things we've seen is that he has escaped accountability in any significant way 
for his entire life, essentially. And if he has committed a crime, our rule of law in this country mandates that we are a government of laws, not people, and he should be held accountable for any criminal conduct that he has done. Um, and I would just add on this topic, you know, we don't know what the evidence is. We don't know what the indictment is going to charge. But one thing I think that is completely out of bounds is to assume and, uh, and, and allege that the Manhattan District Attorney is operating based on partisan politics. And I say that not only because I know District Attorney Bragg and I know that he is uh, of, of truly upstanding integrity, but also because we know that he declined to prosecute Donald Trump a year ago over the recommendation of very senior and experienced prosecutors. At that time, Trump supporters lauded his values and his morals and his adherence to the rule of law. Now, when it appears that he is going to, to charge Donald Trump, those same people are claiming that he's acting in a partisan way. You can't have it both ways. And I think it's important to remember that he has already shown his determination to solely follow the facts and the evidence. And that is very important to recognize. You prosecuted organized crime figures and you've looked at uh, the Trump world, a uh, little bit the company, the other stuff. You see parallels between that and the organized crime syndicates that you prosecuted? Absolutely. Donald Trump is a wannabe crime boss. He rules through threats, um, some degree of extortion and intimidation. Um, he does not believe that the law applies to him and he will do whatever it takes for to benefit himself, uh, notwithstanding whatever guardrails, restrictions, laws, rules, regulations, uh, international treaties, international agreements that there are. And I think one thing we have seen from Donald Trump is the only thing he cares about is his personal interest. Uh, and he will do he will pursue that personal interest at all costs. And that is very similar to crime bosses who have committed their their lives to crime. Their profession is crime. And I think that Donald Trump uh, speaks in code very similar to how crime bosses speak. And he rules with intimidation and threats similar to how crime bosses operate. James. So uh, Tom's a graduate of Stanford Law School and a clerk for Bob Sack, one of the great personal employees of all time. And I asked you about the Fox Dominion case, where we do know a lot. In civil litigation, you, you pretty much, everybody knows pretty much everything. Just based on your knowledge of the facts and your knowledge of the law, how likely is it that Dominion will prevail in this litigation? Well, it's a case that uh, is hard to prove um, and is surprisingly, from what we've seen, there's actually evidence that may yet prove the case. You have to show a knowledge that what you are saying is false if you are a media organization. And that's normally very difficult to, to show. In this case, it appears like there's some pretty persuasive evidence that senior executives at Fox and, and hosts, news anchors, uh, did know that much of what they were peddling was actually false and was solely designed to inflate ratings, not to promote the truth or um, accurate facts. 
The question will come down to, I think, in many respects, whether Fox uh, gave its imprimatur to a lot of the allegations that some of the guests made and how much Fox promoted those uh, false theories about Dominion. Um, but it is surprising the degree of evidence of knowledge that uh, Dominion has has developed in this case. You normally do not see that in these types of cases. Great. So I, I, I just I expect you to comment on your colleagues, but I'll make an observation. I don't think the people, the Republicans on that committee are all that smart. And I think for the most part, the Democrats are really smart. But I'm hearing a lot on Fox and conservative outlets that what these, this weaponization committee is doing is backfiring on And, you know, sometimes you got to just give people a lot of rope when they're looking for it. And I would encourage them to call, you know, they're going to subpoena this person, that person. It generally backfires on them. Is that your experience on the committee? Well, I, I think that it's either backfiring on them or it's just simply not uh, proving their very bold accusations and allegations. I, I think one of the things that we are focused on right now is the fact that we have heard so much about these dozens and dozens of so-called FBI whistleblowers. Well, they've now they met with them apparently in private. And we don't know who they met with, but we do know that some of Donald Trump's uh, close associates were helping to cultivate these witnesses and even paid uh, at least one of them. Um, and we don't know what they said. We don't know how much there was coordination behind the scenes. But three have come in for transcribed interviews, which is the first time that Democrats got an opportunity to question them. And they don't appear to have the information that they, uh, the Republicans purported that they did have. We have asked the Republicans to bring in those three witnesses for the public to see what they know, what they don't know, what their bias is, what their background is, um, and so that the public can be aware of why this committee was created based on these so-called whistleblowers. Uh, they have so far refused to bring them in for a hearing. And I think that says a lot about the foundations for this committee and their uh, false and unfounded accusations. Well, uh, thank you and the other Democrats on the committee for, for doing an outstanding job. I, I would vote, make them vote against subpoenaing them. I'd make a motion to subpoena these three people and put them, make them publicly vote not to subpoena their own witness. I mean, you can yep. do that. Yep. Well, think about that. Albert, thank you, sir. Well, I want to say you're a great guest, Dan Goldman. Uh, it's that Sidwell Friends and Bob Sack background that got you there. Also, being the father of five kids, I'm tired just thinking about that. But you you really are terrific, and thank you so much. We really appreciate it. I, 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 I want you to know, as a Roman Catholic, we believe in redemption, and thank God you paid that parking ticket, man. You know? <laughs> I mean, you can, you can go wrong. I don't know what your mother did. I've seen on TV. She looks like a fine lady. But sometimes you're deficient, and at least you corrected this grave error. <laughs> well, thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure to chat with you. It really thank has been you. our pleasure. Thank you so much, Congressman. 
Hey, James, the Wisconsin Supreme Court election uh, next Tuesday, as we discussed with Ben Wickler last week, stakes could not be higher. My sense from afar uh, is the judge supported by Democrats is going to win, which would give progressives a four to three majority on that court. You know, for those of us outside the Badger State, two huge implications. In the next presidential contest in Wisconsin, if it's as close as the last two, a conservative state court might have learned its lesson and they would not hesitate to overturn any Democratic advantage. They came close to doing that last time. And secondly, it's a chance perhaps to pick up a congressional seat, reversing the lopsided gerrymandering. And Democrats are going to need that because they're going to lose at least two or three seats in North Carolina with a new right-wing court. So a win for the Democrats in Wisconsin on Tuesday would be big. A loss would be catastrophic. Yes, I agree with everything you said. The other thing to remember is on the same day is the Chicago mayor's race. Yep. And, uh, yeah. I, Which is I'm really told, close. It's really close, yes. That this, yeah. it, it, some people were saying that Ballas was going to win. He may win, but it, it, it's really close. And so just don't jump to any conclusions. But uh, Tuesday, 4 April, is going to be a big night. Yeah. It's a, a big night for political jockeys. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Uh, you know, a close Chicago race, I don't know, quite know what we make of that. But uh, uh, I don't think Vallis is as conservative as he's been depicted in the press. And I don't think the Democratic candidate is as left-wing as he's been depicted in the press. But that's what campaigns do. Uh, yeah, I, I, I remember Vallis was in New Orleans, and I never thought of him anything other than a Democrat. He was a kind of pro charter school kind of guys we ran. Yeah, he was but, Rich uh, Daly's, uh, you know, Mayor Daly's, you know, education person. Right. And, uh, and, and, but the, the, the other guy is pretty talented. He's probably a better candidate than Vallis is. He's a yeah. yeah. pretty, pretty smart guy. Well, we'll see. You're right. Next Tuesday is a big day, and we will talk about it next week. James, James one more thing I want to bring up. Uh, Donald Trump. Uh, it's one of the few issues where we have a small, small split. I still think he's not going to be the nominee. You feel circumstances may have changed, and he may well be. My view was fortified this week by a couple things. One, I talked to someone who had had dinner with him. He's really gotten fatter. He is obese. And I think that suggests he's so bothered by all this legal pressure that uh, he's even taking less care of himself than he usually does. Secondly, I watched a little bit of that Waco rally last weekend, all about himself. And James, he just didn't have the dark spark of earlier Trump rallies. And finally, he went back on Fox, and even Jason Kaffitz, a former Utah congressman, once a Trump sycophant, said Trump was horrific. He was bad. He just didn't have it. Uh, I don't think we're seeing the same Donald Trump now. Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I'd have to say I, I agree with, with, with everything you said, it's very factual. In, uh, I don't know t to his people that he's just become an instrument of their anger or their belief that the, the system is rigged against them, and that voting for him is a bigger act than just him. It, it, it's a way that they feel like they get heard in society, and you know. It, if Trump is, I don't know, if he's in a coma, they might still vote for him because I, I think, man, I think it might be enough to, to 
nominate a Republican, that the resentment and grievances just outweigh everything else. But I, I, I think all the observations are accurate. I, 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 the only reason that I think his chances are better now because I, I, I think there's some evidence that they're just riding around and view this as a threat to their own lives or something. They're so goddamn crazy. I'm, Donald trying to figure him out. Well, and, and if they are in indictment, would probably even make him rally around him more. Um, he, he does play to grievance. He used to play to other people's grievances. That's what he did in 16, uh, and to an extent in 20. Now he's playing almost solely to his own grievances. Yeah, uh, it, it does that matter, because then I think, I, I think voting for him is just their way of telling the rest of the country to go F itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. James, one more quick thing before we go. Um, you know, one of our great allies for 75 years has been Israel. Boy, they are, they, they got a mess over there. Netanyahu is really, really, in, he's really imperiled, not only that country, but I think the U.S.-Israeli relations. Well, it didn't matter Jim Gerstein, our go-to guy on Israel, and, and reports out of Israel, and this is true. The, the thing that really did him in is the Israeli armed forces, and, and particularly the Air Force, depend on reservists. And these guys were not going to fly. Right. Those guys right. were women, too. Very, very you know, uh, they were not going to fly. And, and, you know, I... I, I trained to do all of this and I'm going to support and, and I'm going to defend an, auto, an autocrat. That's not why I'm here. And the other thing is you see the, the different issues, admittedly, but, you know, you look at what's happening in France and I, sometimes these things catch fire around the world and I wonder if massive street protests or is it just individualized circumstances in Israel and France or is this going to become something different. I wish we would have it in Moscow, I'll tell you that. I'd like to see them. But Yeah, you know what would happen to them if they tried to do that in Moscow? They all get shot. Yeah, yeah. 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 But uh, there were, maybe there were so many that they could do something. I, I don't know. And I, I, I don't know. These are, are, are there's a half million people in Tel Aviv. That's a lot of people in a country where, I don't know, nine million people total. Sure is. I mean, think of what you that know, would when I, uh, I read where some people say Netanyahu has lost it. He's not as shrewd as he once was. Well, he may not be, but he's boxed in. Uh, he has got a very small majority in the Knesset, and there's uh, enough of them that are really the right-wing fanatics, really crazy right-wing fanatics, that uh, they're going to desert him if he, if he doesn't give them everything they want. I mean, he's in, he's in a very similar situation as Kevin McCarthy. And secondly, he's got to get this judicial thing through uh, because otherwise he might face in. You know, prison. Yes. So yes. that's an incentive. Yes, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an incentive to stay out of jail. Because if right. he doesn't do this, that's probably where he's going to end up. And, and people don't want to die for a car, the, the, when the causes keep B.B. Netanyahu's crooked ass out of the penitentiary. Right. They, right. They're not excited about it. They don't want to fly in the harm's way for that. Well, it's a, it's, it's really, it's sad. It's tragic, and some people who have been great, great supporters of Israel for a long, long time really view it now as an existential threat. And uh, uh, I don't know how it's going to play out, but uh, I hope Israel has a new prime minister sometime in the next couple of months. Although I can't say I'm sanguine. 
Hey, James, our guest is, I don't know what, the Stephen King, the Jane Austen of sports authors, John Feinstein, now writing his 45th book. Usually as a regular guest in this podcast, he calls me out for missing one or two. So, John, it's great to have you on. Uh, let's great talk to basketball. Be here. Last year, the final four, the Blue Bloods, Duke, Villanova, Carolina, Kansas. This year, UConn is a Blue Blood, but it's Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, Miami. Is this an aberration or has there been a fundamental change in college basketball? Well, I, I think there has been a fundamental change in college basketball, Al, in that uh, the transfer portal has certainly changed things because teams can rebuild and get more experienced players more quickly. Uh, and uh, NILs, uh, name, image, and likeness, has certainly changed um, college basketball now. Most people would say, oh, that'll help the Blue Bloods. Well, the Blue Bloods already had all the advantages. Now there are schools. I'll give you one example. Charleston, which won 32 games this year. Each of their starters had $100,000 in NILs because the school was able to do a great job putting together money for, for their players. And more and more schools are going to be able to do this as time goes on. And I don't think that necessarily means we aren't going to see Blue Bloods in the Final Four anymore, because we will, but this will happen. And, 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 you know, if you go back, even before the transfer portal and the NILs, uh, because of the one and done, because some of the mid-majors had more experienced players, we saw George Mason, we saw Butler, we saw VCU, we saw Wichita State, we saw Loyola of Chicago. So this is not brand new. It's just happening more. John, on the transfer portal... If your team is losing players, you hate it. But a basketball player really ought to have the same rights to change schools as a music or a math major. I agree. But and we, we know how, how crazy high school recruiting is. For a coach now, there's kind of a double recruiting, uh, isn't there? I mean, it's getting the high school players, but then it's going to the transfer portal. And my guess is most of these coaches are spending 24-7 looking at possibilities of both well, those when, they're going to lose and those they're going to get. When Mike Bray announced he was leaving Notre Dame, he said to me, I'm exhausted from just what you referenced, not only the transfer portal, but also trying to, to raise money and recruit players uh, with NILs. And uh, it is it is a 12-month-a-year job now. You have to recruit your team, and then you have to re-recruit it. And the other thing, the one difference between a basketball player or a football player and a chemistry major, a, a, a you know music major, is that other schools don't necessarily come and recruit them to right. change schools. And that's going on constantly now. If you have a team um, that's a good mid-major, you have to be looking over your shoulder constantly for some power school coming in and trying to coach your best players. Let me ask you about NIL. Let me, well, I'll take a specific example. Caleb Love, very good UNC player, just said yep. for three years, just said he's going to transfer portal. Uh, obviously, he wants to go to a program where he showcase. But will this be a bidding war too? I mean, a million dollars plus to get a player of that of, of that caliber. I don't think it'll be that high for Caleb Love, but it'll be it'll be high. There will be a, a bunch of schools that will want him. He's very talented. He's got NBA potential, um, and he can he can take a good team and make it very good, or a very good team and make it great um, by transferring there. On the other hand, at North Carolina, you see Armando Baycott, who's coming back for a fifth year because he'll make more money next year as an NIL at North Carolina than he would make as a second-round draft pick in the NBA. Wow, that changes everything. James, 
So, Don, as you know, on this side of the show, we heavily interpret things through the eyes of LSU. But it strikes me that women's basketball is a really fast-growing sport. It is. It's skyrocketing in interest compared to where it would be. Do you expect a TV ratings differential between the men's Final Four and the women's this year to be like among the lowest ever? Well, that's a good question, James, uh, because a lot of people are saying the men's Final Four is going to have low ratings because, as, as Al said, there's only one blue blood, UConn. And, uh, you know, most fans don't know anything about Florida Atlantic or about uh, San Diego State and, and less so Miami. Um, and the women's ratings have certainly gone up. South Carolina is a team people love to watch because they're so good. They're undefeated. They're going for a third straight national title. Um, you, you've got LSU, um, with, with, uh, your glamorous coach um, there and Virginia tech first time in the final four, Virginia tech, very interesting story. Uh, the only African-American women's coach at a, at a power five school, there are 65 of them, uh, is the coach at, at Virginia tech. The only male African-American, by the The way, male, male African-American, male African-American. Thank you. Yeah. By the way, he played for Lefty Drizel at, at James Madison. Um, but it, so I, you see the women's ratings going up, and people are expecting the men's ratings to be lower than usual this year. I'm not so sure that's going to happen because I think I know as a basketball fan, I love this Final Four. I think it's great, but I'm different than a lot of people. I wrote a book about mid-major basketball a few years ago. Um, but uh, the women's ratings are definitely going to be up because of the storylines that, that they have coming in and because South Carolina is going for an undefeated season. And whenever a team is going for an undefeated season in any sport, it generates interest. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's kind of oddly enough. Uh, Mary and I are going to be at the University of Iowa Saturday night. And, and they play South I didn't Carolina. even mention Iowa. And they're, they're yeah, yeah, that, that crack uh, Clark woman they have, they got a, they got a real superstar there. And... Well, she had the first triple double ever in NCAA men's or women's basketball in the tournament in the, in the regional final. She had 41 right. points and 12 assists and 10 rebounds, which is extraordinary for anybody. Right, and and so I, I, I but I, you know, chance to beat South Carolina, like 11 and a half point underdog South Carolina. Which yeah, because South Carolina's that good. I mean, they, they yeah. really haven't been challenged uh, all season. Yeah, Ole Miss come to overtime. That's, there you go. You the coach at Ole Miss is a is an interesting story. She's like Bahamian. Okay. And I, 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 I will tell you my interest in women's basketball. So Kim Mulkey, LSU was nine and twenty two years ago. Yeah. She came to town. Now she's in the final four. That, that's a big that you got to take your hat off. That's a yeah, she's a great coach. There, there's no question, James. She's a great coach. I have some problems with her politics um, and, and the way she dismissed a, a, a woman who, who helped make her a national championship a champion at Baylor when she was in jail in Russia. But, you know, it's it's like Bob Knight. What, and there was plenty to question in Bob Knight. And but one thing you couldn't question was his coaching. Right. I, I don't think she has some of the character traits that Bob Knight had. Well, well yeah. they're different. We all have different flaws, right? Right, right, right. right. But all right, let's go to, you know, to the big tournament, to the, to the men's tournament. Uh, the one thing I, I, my guy told me is I was on UConn early because 
sitting fresh out head. Do, do you think they're justifiably the tournament favorite at this point? Oh, there's no question they're the favorite. I, I mean, they're the favorite because, as, as you guys both mentioned, they are the blue blood program in the Final Four. They've won four national championships. Uh, and plus, um, they they have won their four games by an average of 22.5 points. I, I was in Albany the first weekend of the tournament, saw them play up close, and was, you know, they've got two very good big men. In, in today's college basketball world, very few teams have one good big man. These guys have two. Sinego is an extraordinary player. Um, and I think Danny Hurley is a really good coach. Uh, he's, I think he's underrated as a coach because he's a little bit crazy on the sideline. And people go, oh, he's, he's lost his mind. And, and he hasn't. He's just very intense. He's a real good coach. I just trying to think of any team that's been that dominant in a tournament. My mind goes back to the Michigan State team, like maybe the late 70s or early 80s. They, um, they, they did beat us. They just went through it like it was no one was there. Well, 81, Indiana uh, was yeah. very dominant. Bob Knight's uh, second national championship team. And if you want to move up further, in 1990, Nevada-Las Vegas won the championship game by 30 points. I can't remember who they played in that game. Right. Yeah, I thought you'd forget that, but you can remember <laughs> who they played the next year. I suspect. I remember who they played the next year very vividly, and they were thirty-four and zero coming in, and everybody was presenting them with a second national title. And after Duke beat them, John Wooden, who was watching in the stands and who, of course, won seven in a row at one point, stood up and turned to somebody and said, "Well, a lot of great teams have won one in a row." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, last in the last year, uh, Mike Krzyzewski, Jay Wright, Roy Williams, all coaching legends have retired. Now, there are still some coaching legends there. I don't know if they're quite in that category, but Bill Self and Tom Izzo and maybe Tony Bennett. Uh, but who were the three coaches? Who, who Who's on the bubble? Who Who's the next three, say, who are, we're going to say in a couple of years? They are the Krzyzewski's rights uh Izzo's whatever well I I would put Tony Bennett in that category because he's younger than all the rest of them Tony's mm-hmm. only 53 um Tom Izzo 66 Bill Self is I believe 65 and as you right. mentioned three guys who retired uh Jay Wright was only 62 but he, he decided to hang it up so who comes next is always always hard to determine you know I think of Mark Few in the elite category, but he hasn't won a national championship yet. Right. And and he's not going to be put in that elite category until he does. Uh, I believe he will. I think he's that good a coach. Um, The uh, the other guys who, who come to mind, um, somebody just went out of my mind uh, who I was thinking about. Probably Danny Hurley was in your mind. Dan Hurley. Dan Hurley is very young as you know, but he hasn't won a national championship yet. Um, the, and, and then, uh, another ACC coach, uh, that I would put in the potential, uh, category is, um, Leonard, Miami? Hamilton. Leonard, Ham- well, Jim Laranaga is 73. Jim yeah. Laranaga and Leonard Hamilton are both over 70. Uh, I, I think that Jim Laranaga should be in the final, uh, should be in the hall of fame and isn't yet. I don't understand why not. But there, there are a lot of guys. The other guy who, who who should be mentioned is Scott Drew, who has won a national championship and is yeah. only fifties. And his Baylor teams are good every year. They 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 got knocked out early this year, but Baylor's always a threat. All right, let me go on a rant. 
Rick Pitino, hired at St. John's. Two predictions. He will win and he'll cheat because that's what he always does. Calvin Hill, the great uh, football player, told me he played a season in the old world football league in Hawaii when Pitino yeah. was the college coach. And he said he got caught cheating then. It's happened. An multiple scandals at Louisville. The control freak coach said he didn't know anything about all that. Had a picture right. of the Pope in the program while paying for an abortion. St. John's is a good school with a rich tradition. But, boy, uh, this is winning at any price. Well, A, you're right about winning at any price. B, he will win. But C, he won't cheat. You know why? Because cheating's allowed now. That's true. You're allowed to pay your players. That's well, why. Well, I don't know. I, is it allowed to bring? Is it allowed to bring hookers in? Uh, uh, to I think take Rick's care smart enough not to let that happen again. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think there's enough enough social life in New York that he doesn't have to bring them in. This isn't Louisville. Um, but it, 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 there's two sides to this story. One is is St. John selling its soul to win games? Yes, a hundred percent. Just as Iona did when they brought him back. Right. Two, is it going to work for St. John's? Yes, because he can. He has Wall Street connections. He'll raise huge NIL money. He'll get lots of publicity being in New York, and he'll win a lot of games because he's won game. He's won wherever he has coached, including in Greece when he went there for two years after yeah. the Louisville scandal. Yeah, and Iona, John. Uh, okay, I mean, you said the Huskies are the favorite. Uh, let's see if you're a chalk eater. Uh, who's going to be in the Monday Night Final, and who's going to lift the trophy at the end? Well, Al, I think I told you this story that my ability to pre predict these games goes back to 1989 and my first marriage when my then wife was going to pick Seton Hall to beat Indiana in her office pool because her dad went to Seton Hall. She knew nothing about basketball. And I said to her, look, Mary, I'm not telling you what to do. I never tell anybody what to do. But one program I know something about is Indiana, and they're not losing to Seton Hall. She changed the pick. Seen Hall won by 20, uh, went to the championship game. She would have won the pool if I'd kept my big mouth shut. And eventually she divorced me. So I avoid making picks. I do think Connecticut's the best team. But if this tournament has proved anything to us, it's the best team doesn't always win. Um, you know, nobody, nobody in the world outside of their locker room had Florida Atlantic in the final four. Um, and, and I, the only reason I knew the coach at all is because he's a former Indiana manager. Uh, right. he managed for Bob Knight in his last four years, Bob Knight's last four years. Uh, I think Connecticut will cut the net down. Um, but, uh, but I say that and then I'll say right away, well, I wouldn't be shocked if Miami beat him because Jim Laranaga is such a great coach. James. So yeah, if 45 books, is that, did I hear that right? No, well, you heard it right. It's actually 47, James, but I was See, I knew he'd correct me. I knew he'd correct me. I wouldn't have if James hadn't brought it up. <laughs> so uh, the question becomes, what's number 48? Number 48, thank you for asking, uh, is coming out in six weeks. It is a biography of David Faraday, and I know you guys aren't big golf fans, but he is a remarkable story. Grew up in the Troubles, during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, lifelong functioning alcoholic. Um, was a very good player in Europe, played on the Ryder Cup team that in the famous war by the shore and beat Payne Stewart in the singles, uh, went through a horrible first marriage, um, lost his son to a drug overdose, and yet went from being a good player in Europe who was dealing with terrible problems with drugs and alcohol to arguably the most popular golf announcer in history. You know, first for CBS, then for NBC, and now for LIV, which doesn't thrill me, but... He was offered a hell of a lot of money 
to make the move. Is that uh, the Saudi? Is that the Saudi group? That's the Saudis. Yes. That is so sleazy, John. Yeah, I know. Uh, but but at least unlike a lot of the guys, players who've gone to LIV, when David, they all said, we want to grow the game. We want to do this. David said, I'm doing it for the money. And and he only had a year left on his NBC contract. LIV offered him a five-year contra- contract for multi-millions. Uh, would I have done it? I hope not, but I've never been in that position. James, I interrupted you. That's all right. No, I, I guess when you have, it, writing books, I think, is like having children. Uh, you, you know, you, you you love them all, but what's the book that, of all of the 47 and soon to be 48, is there any one book that stands out in your mind that well, you had fun um, doing and learned a lot yeah, more? There's a couple, James. Thanks for asking that. Um, one is my most recent, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, which was about racism in sports, which I is the elephant in the room in our entire country, not just in sports. And I was very proud that I did that book and 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 of the reviews and re- reaction the book got. Uh, the book I enjoyed doing the most was A Civil War, which was about the Army-Navy football rivalry because of the young men I dealt with. I used to call them kids, but now they're all in their 40s. Um, you, you have to be extraordinary to go to a military academy and play football at the Division One level and be successful, which Army and Navy frequently are. Um, and the one other book that was the hardest for me to ever write, but which I'm glad I did, was a book called Caddy for Life that was about my dear friend Bruce Edwards, who was Tom Watson's caddy for 30 years and was dying of ALS. And Tom and I have worked together since Bruce's death to try to raise money for ALS research, and I'm proud of that, too. Yeah. I would add, if I can, James, your probably your most famous book may be Season on the Brink. Brink. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Season on the Brink. Season on the Brink got me started um, because of its success. It was my first book. Uh, I've often said I'm really glad I did it, but I'd never want to do it again. Uh, It was a long winter in Bloomington, Indiana. But I'm forever grateful to Bob Knight for giving me the access he did because that's what made the book such a success. Yeah. Is there something nice to say about Bob Knight? Yes. I mean, A, great coach. Uh, B, B, very smart guy. C, um, at times very loyal. Not always, but at times very loyal. And D, like I said, you know, uh, Bob didn't speak to me for eight years after the book came out. And Gary Williams and I, I was in Hawaii with Maryland covering the tournament out there because somebody had to do it. And Gary and I were walking through the hotel lobby and we ran into Bob and a friend of his. And Bob turned around, said hello, acted like nothing had ever happened between us. You know, how you doing? I heard you just had a son. How's that going? And when Bob walked away, Gary looked at me and said, after all the names he called you, why would you speak to him? And I said, Gary, because he built my house. And, and <laughs> that's true. So that's something nice I have to say about him, too. <laughs> well, uh, I will always so enjoy when you come on the show and it just so much insight and so much fun. And, you know, my the most prolific sports writer maybe of my lifetime. So but a, a very good one. So thank you very much. John. Oh, Thanks, I love Andy. everything you've written, John. And John, just to remind you, in 1990, you. UNLV, the school they beat was Duke University. I just, oh, I know you forgot. Because I'd forgotten. I knew you did. I knew you did. <laughs> uh, the score All was right. 103.73, just by the way. 
What's right, that guys. line of Tarkanian NCAA is so mad at Kentucky they're going to put Cleveland State on probation? <laughs> That's exactly what he said. He said they, they're so mad at, at Kentucky they're going to put Cleveland State on probation for three more years. Tark, oh, you can say many things about Tark, but I'll say two things about him. He was a great basketball coach, and he was also very funny and clever and fun to be around. And he once got me tickets to hear Frank Sinatra in Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, they don't have – I know we got to go – but 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 I, I know the coaches are, are as good and as smart and all that. But we don't have as many characters. Character. We don't You're have right. Tarkanian. John Thompson, in his way, was certainly a character. So uh, was Steve Smith in his way, and Jim Valvano. Jim Valvano. Yeah, I mean, You're right. absolutely right, Al. We don't have the characters because they're all making so much money. Louis Carnesecca. Louis, who's ninety-eight, by the way, and Rolly. still going straight. Right. And Roley's passed away, but he, he was he was a great. Roley used to always say to me, you know, you don't have to be Jewish to be a schmuck, but you're both. <laughs> I loved Roley. John, we loved having you on. Uh, we'll all watch this weekend, both the women's and the men's games. There ought to be, you know, I, I, I think, James, we're probably in for six really good basketball games. I hope so. I'll tell you what, I'm going to be ready for tip-off on Friday night. And, uh we take on Virginia Tech, who's very, very, very good. I got to tell you, <laughs> they are okay. very good. You're right. Also, I, you, know what? you don't get to the Final Four without being good. No, but, but I do. South Carolina for coming. John, thank you so much. This has been terrific. Thanks, Al. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay. Now for the outrage of the week. James, another mass killing. Tragically, they seem almost routine. This time, a Christian elementary school in Nashville. Three staffers murdered by an assailant with assault weapons and three little kids. The killer identified as transgender. That was music to the ears of hate mongers. J.D. Vance said this should produce, quote, a lot of soul searching on the extreme left, as their rhetoric is what prompts people like this. Maybe Senator Vance can tell us what prompted the white nationalist racist to kill those blacks in a Buffalo supermarket, or the MAGA Trumpite to kill those people in El Paso, or the Jewish-hating, immigrant-hating, right-wing bigot to kill those people in the Pittsburgh synagogue. The reality is the overwhelming majority of these atrocities are committed by right-wing fanatics. How much have we had heard from J.D. Vance about them and any soul-searching from the extreme right? And, of course, predictably, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said all the blame is on hormones and medications from this trans person. And she said, she really said this, we can now stop blaming guns. Maybe it was those Jewish laser beams that she worries so much about. Yeah. I, how would his children kill? Would it, would, it, would it shot with hormones or shot with an AR-15? Yeah. God damn. Hey, you know, in... in the, the thing is, in, in, it, 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 they go through the same fucking cycle every time this happens, and it happens all the time. And, you know, then the conversation is always the same. It, it, it's, it's just, just the anxiety this is causing, the stupidity behind it, the, the, everything else is, is utterly depressing. Yeah, it sure is. And, uh, you know, J.D. Vance is utterly depressing, too. What an absurd statement, but... Anyway, I just, uh, it's just tragic. I mean, three little kids going to a Christian elementary school were killed with an automatic, semi-automatic rifle. 
I mean, James, that just shouldn't happen. Shot my hormones out. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Thank you, Marge. All right, now for our listener questions. Once again, boy, we got so many good ones this week, James. Gordon in Norwood, Michigan says, why does the Sierra Club embrace wokeness? Their environmental goals enjoy broad support, but the embrace of equity language almost seems designed to alienate a large percentage of potential supporters. Shouldn't these groups be trying to make as big a tent as possible instead of virtue signaling? So, I, but thank you for the question. And I'd go back in the archive and get the show that we did with Ryan Grimm. And the answer shows right? how all these progressive advocacy groups, is what they call themselves, in Washington are all literally, it's debilitating. And they spend most of their time on administratively dealing with these, I, I don't know what you call them, ancillary issues, but, but not part of the core mission. And it, it's really worth taking a read, listen to that show. And I'm out here at a, a, a meeting with American Bridge, and there's a lot of people from the progressive advocacy group community, I guess you would call them. And almost to a person, they would make the same observation, that it's, it's, it's become near paralyzing. And the, the question is very astute. And I, I urge the question to listen to our podcast with, with Ryan Grimm. I think it was probably in November of last year, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it was about then. And uh, I think adding to your point, the other side, the uh, anti-environmentalists, the anti-civil libertarians, the anti-racial uh, uh, yeah. equality groups, they're not bothered by this stuff. They focus on their mission. And if, uh, if, the, if the so-called good guys here are, are distracted, it means that their whole cause is distracted. Right. The heartland uh, group, they're not, they're not tied down by this. Right. Brian in Nassau County, New York, asked if Jimmy Carter had gotten the hostages out prior to the 1980 election, might that have been enough to win? If so, can you opine on what impact you think a presidency with a second term Carter instead of Reagan might have had in the politics of today? Um, I doubt. First of all, I don't know if he could have gotten the hostages out. We have the story about how how John Connolly and uh, and subsequent CIA director uh, William Casey tried to sandbag any effort. I'm not sure, even if they hadn't done that, that the hostages uh, or uh, would have gotten out. I think it's unlikely, and I don't know when they would have gotten out. Jimmy Carter would have been much better for the country uh, in 1981 through 85. But it wasn't the hostages that was his, 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 his big problem. We had double-digit inflation back then, uh, which was uh, a result not of Carter's policy, but of, of the international, global, and oil issues. And Jimmy Carter, once Ronald Reagan proved to people that he wasn't, you know, the devil incarnate, uh, I think he was going to win that election. Maybe if the hostages had gotten out, it would have been a little bit closer. Well, uh- yeah, and a couple of things to remember about President Carter is people said Ronald Reagan, you know, started again deregulation. Actually, Carter began deregulation. Remember, Alfred Kahn was, the, I guess, it was the started deregulating airlines under the Carter administration. Uh, secondly, uh, Reagan gets a lot of credit off uh, whatever is the defense buildup. The defense buildup actually did start under the Carter administration. Most economic historians will tell you the person most responsible for the the prosperity in the the later Reagan years was Paul Volcker. 
and his policies as Fed chairman. Well, who was the first person to name Paul Volcker to the Fed? It was Jimmy Carter. And, and so a lot of the things that people give Reagan credit for were actually initiatives or appointments that were started under the administration of President Jimmy Carter. So, yes, uh, in, I, 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 I tend to agree with you, Al. I think that the, the country was just in a sour mood. It was in, it, inflation was bad, and the economy was starting to stay, you know, stagflation. But I, I think there are a lot of things, and people are starting to say, oh, my God, maybe this guy wasn't as bad a president as we thought. It's, it's a good thought that people have it. Uh, that's absolutely right. He was the best ex-president ever, and he was a better president than he was given uh, credit for. But I still don't think he would have won, I agree, in 1980. Right, uh, Jim, yeah. Jim in Stockton, New Jersey, says, I'm a lifelong left-of-center independent, and I have an issue with the presidential candidates of both political parties. In my opinion, Trump won in 2016 because the Democrats put up an unelectable candidate. In 2024, we have two less-than-desirable candidates are we at a point in this political climate where the best presidential candidates don't really want the job? Well, I, I don't know that, well, I'm not going to say Hillary was unelectable because she wasn't the popular vote by more than a little bit. And states that she lost for were pretty close and there were a lot of events. And you certainly had uh, James Comey and you certainly had Russian interference. And uh, we could debate how much these counted. Yeah. Uh, I think probably more than we think. By the way, I have this thought before I get it. You know, we're talking about, and there's a lot of conversations I'm starting about, and we talk about this on the show, is how we're having an era of low black turnout. And I wonder if some of that is not due to Russian misinformation that keeps coming in. You know, we know in, in, in 2016, they were sending voters and black voters in Wayne County, which is Detroit, saying, if you vote on Monday. They would get him all kinds of misinformation. Yeah, the wrong date, right. Right. So that that's something that uh, I, I think need, uh, merits further follow-up. In terms of the, the current group presidential candidates, or, or which is not very many, uh, it, it seems that Biden has a poll on the Democratic Party that and he wants, he claims he runs for re-election. Uh, that obviously is having a chilling effect on everyone else. And, you know, the rallying around Trump and DeSantis has proven himself, and I, kind of quickly proven himself, and you, you've seen this in your career before, where somebody is really hot and they just don't have it at this level. I'm not w willing to say DeSantis doesn't have it, but i got to tell you, he's kind of 0 for 15 in his first, you know, 15 at bats. You're not talking about President Giuliani, are you? Oh man, you go back and you know, <laughs> yeah, he was he was the front runner. Yeah, yeah, you know, yes, it, 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 and so that's that's the danger. But he he might get his footing, but boy, he don't have any footing at all right now. And and, and if you look at his staff and the stuff underneath, it's just not very good. You know. Oh. They've got to they've got to up their game. There's time to do that, but they sure have had a bad couple weeks. Uh, this is Laura Lee in Garfield, Arkansas. James, you know where oh. Garfield, Arkansas is? I don't. You know, I don't. Yeah, as yeah. soon as you said it, I was, my, it was my mind was tumbling, but I I, I don't. But I'm, I'll tell you what I'm going to do is I'm going to look it up as soon as it shows up. But I'm not surprised that Laura Lee is from Garfield, Arkansas. But anyway, 
she asked a very good question. She said, is it really possible that China would take action on behalf of Russia, like sending lethal aid, or is this just posturing from China, com China combined with fear-mongering in the media? China is playing a very delicate balancing act here, I think, James. They really have... They, deep down inside, they have contempt for the Russians. They don't respect them much. They think they've done, you know, run a lousy war. They got a lousy economy, but they think that their prime rival, correctly, on in, in geopolitics and economics and regionally, is the United States. So they're not eager for a United States uh, uh, win anywhere, a Western alliance win. On the other hand, uh, they don't want to be seen as too close to the Russians and alienate the Western Europeans and some business interest in the U.S. So they're playing a very delicate game. I doubt they're going to send really serious lethal aid to bail out Putin. Uh, but uh, I think what they're hoping for is just, you know, it goes on for a while. There's a long stalemate. They're not spending any money or resources on it. Uh, and the, but, but, but I don't think they're, they will want to escalate it. You know, if, if I were in charge by our gate, are you not, so so what I'd do is I'd have a propaganda campaign. And I would be running a backdoor propaganda campaign in Russia. And let me tell you, that the Russia, and I would make the point, Russia is, if, is about to become a Chinese client state. Do you really want to be dependent on China for your own future? Do you want to be subservient to China? Do you want to be... In, in, in effect, dictated to by people in Beijing. They would not like that. That would not be popular. And to some extent, it is largely true. Is The Russians are, are willing to sacrifice some of their sovereignty in return for China bailing them out of their idiotic criminal uh, operation in Ukraine. And, you know, you got to fight a war on the front lines and you got to fight a war behind the front lines. And, and, you know, we should be, I don't know, I guess you should drop leaflets. Maybe you can infect computer viruses or, or, you know, websites. I mean, there's a thousand things they can do where we should be telling the Russian people, if you continue down this path, you're going to be a client state or a colony of Beijing. And there's so much truth to that that you could convince people that is really happening to them. But you can't yeah. just fight a goddamn war again on, on one front line. There's a lot more to it. Agree. Daniel in Sharon, Connecticut. He loved Ben Wickler, the Wisconsin Party chair, guest last week. He said, there's one thing he said, though, that just made me shake my head, and that is the use of the phrase right to work. This is the name of the law, but it's a Republican win every time you say it. Democrats should stop using it and instead call it the freeloader law because that's what it is. Republicans refuse to say the Affordable Care Act and call it Obamacare at every opportunity. Uh, now, of course, it's popular. But I, I think Democrats uh, are wrong to perpetuate this Republican talking point and slogan. James? Well, uh, first of all, I'm going to see Governor Gretchen Whitmer out here. And the effect of winning elections is Michigan just did away with its right to work for less law and had uh, instituted legislation where people have the right to work for more. So mm -hmm. this and the answer to most questions is elect more Democrats. All right? Mm -hmm. look, look at what happened in Michigan. And, and by the way, I saw Ben last night, uh, and he told me that the polling still looks, you know, pretty good 
and the enthusiasm gap in our favor is maintains itself at a, at, at a healthy level. So, uh, you know, racist clothes in Wisconsin, I'd got, you know, I'd give the, the normal caveats. But yeah, we're going to get I, into that. Um, I would describe myself yeah. as foolish. Yeah. Kevin in, in Vashon Island, Washington, says it seems to him, him the main reason the, the GOP is so reluctant to challenge Trump, if he were to lose the primary, he would launch a third-party candidacy. That's giving Democrats a big advantage. Do you agree? What would you advise that part of the GOP want to move away from Trump and MAGA? They have a terrible problem because Trump is unpopular with most of the public, but his core support, that 30 percent, if you will, uh, of hardcore MAGA Republicans, uh, they don't tolerate any dissent. And uh, I think it's very hard to move away from Chris Christie apparently is going to do it in a very hard way if he runs. But uh, he, he's a he, he's a an albatross in many ways for them, James. Well, do do. I saw Rick Wilson last night. Do what Rick Wilson, Tim Miller, Bill Crystal, Sarah Longwell. Do what they did. Shit, just become Democrat. In fact, you don't have to say you're a Democrat, but just start voting right. Democrat and help Democrats. It's the only place you got to go. Well, I admire what they're doing, but they're not running for office. Well, you know, you're not going to, you can't win a Republican primary. I, maybe there's some way I can't think of it. I don't think you can yeah. without having fidelity to Trump. So you just, you're just going to have to adjust along the way. And maybe the you got to consider this. Is the Republican Party really for me right now? And maybe it was for me in, at, at some time in the past, but right now you don't have a place and Come over to our side and help help shape policy. That's all I can. It's the only answer I can give you because you don't you don't have a you don't have a place in your old political party. Right, you I agree. Finally, Craig in Oklahoma City said, "I woke up this morning to the tragedy playing out in Mississippi, and my first thought was to ask how many of these people could have been saved had they had a hospital and life saving care." care closer to these towns. Uh, that, that, that thought uh, is information I acquired with, from your discussion earlier with Brandon Presley. James? Oh, my God. All right, let, 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 let's start a couple of things. I, I, I guess we can sort of fold my outrage, and I suspect what, what you were thinking about into this question is so good. First of all, Rolling Fork, Mississippi, in Shawkey County, some of the poorest parts of the United States. I, I, I know we, we've all seen poverty, but in, so you've been in parts of the Mississippi Delta, you, you, that, that you, you'll really see what poverty is, and, and that does just. There was a, a New York Times story in LaFleur County, which is somewhat north of Sharkey County. I, I'm just going off to my, my, little bit of ge my geographic knowledge, but probably an hour's drive right. from Roland Park to, to Greenwood, which is a decent-sized city. Their hospital is losing money like crazy. They may have to close it. And th they have an answer to 80% of their problems take the Medicaid expansion. Now, Mississippi, I just want to give you the depth of the corruption of that place in the Republican Party. It's reported they have a $3.8 billion surplus. All right, this is Mississippi. All right, they got $3.8 billion. It's the poorest state in the country. They have a 7.5% sales tax on food. On freaking Groceries, food. Right. Groceries. All right? And 
They refused to take Medicaid expansion, which would cover another half a million people and improve the coverage. Because, you know, if you live in LaFour County, they have accountants, they have, they have people, they have school teachers. When they close the hospital, people that are not on Medicaid get sick too. It's so stupid, it's so corrupt, so backwards looking. So what they want to do is get rid of the state income tax, which is not very hard to start with. And you probably don't I'd have to go back and look. I don't think anybody making $50,000 a year underpays any state income tax in Mississippi. It is such, it, it, it's such bass backwards policy. And, you know, Brandon is on top of this. And, you know, they, they give him $5 million to volleyball centers at the poor state in the country, they got $3.8 billion laying around, and they want to return it to their campaign donors. Right. Now, go figure this. It, 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 it's more than outrageous. And the question is spot on and just go Sharkey County to LaFleur County, and you, you can see what's going on. This, these tornadoes hit some very unfortunate people, I can tell you that. Yeah, they sure did. Everybody out there, you ought to read the lead piece in Wednesday's New York Times on Mississippi uh, and Medicaid. Okay, keep those questions coming in. They're good. Those we didn't get to this week, we will try to get to next week. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics World Room with James Carvel, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors in recent show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.